Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring the films of John Sayles, as recommended by James McCormick, and in this week's episode I'll be talking about John Sayles' 1988 film, Eight Men Out, a film that is pretty earnest and straightforward uh, to its detriment, I actually think. Um, the story tells, or, or I should say this film tells the story of the uh, the 1919, or was it 1918, um, Black Sox scandal, um, and from what I understand, quite faithfully adapts it and tells it based on the book written by Elliot Asinoff. Um And yet, without having read the book, just by watching the movie, just by taking in the story, just kind of seeing how everything is set up and plays out, I can't help but feel that this the film is really just kind of a cursory retelling of this story. Um, we have, you know, a film which connect or, or you know, ha, you know, lays out the dots and kind of connects the dots for the framework to tell the story, a you know, quite controversial and um, multifaceted scandal from a hundred years ago that is still, you know, has had generated a cloud that is still hanging over the professional baseball community. Um, but it feels lacking. I, I mean, this, the screenplay by John Sayles, um, introduces us to the characters and the, and the basics of why they as characters would care about, um, not the scandal, but why they would be invested in, this fix of um, throwing the the World Series for for personal gain, it tells us, I don't even want to say everything, it tells us enough of what we need to know about them and why they'd be invested in this, but it doesn't spend an awful lot of time explaining to us, the viewer, why we should care about this, why we should be invested in what is happening. Um, it is pretty simplistic and black and white when it comes to crafting the characters in the sense of you have your good guys and you have your bad guys and there's not a whole lot of gray area or there's not a whole lot of middle ground with your good guys you've got obviously Bucky Weaver as played by John Cusack um Kid who's the manager of the team and um Dickie Kerr who is um the third string pitcher who turns out to be kind of a minor superstar for the team kind of later on in the World Series once he um really you know, um, validates his himself with his skill and his ability to kind of keep the team in the series. And yet the, the those latter two characters, Kid and, and Dickie Kerr, are good because of their ignorance, because they are not aware of the fix. Um, and yet, um, and then we have Bucky Weaver, who is very clearly the, you know, kind of the Americana um, good old boy, the, the one who knows about the scandal, who refuses to participate in it, who protests his innocence even to the very end and yet suffers like everyone else and, 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 and you know, butts heads with his teammates who are participating, you know. Uh, you know, I just want to win the World Series is kind of his mantra. He just wants to play ball. He feels alive when he's playing ball, and that's what he wants to do, and he is pretty much untainted 
um, but also in a way kind of an uninteresting character because of that. And then we have the bad guys who are, you know, Swede and, and Chick uh, and, you know, Comiskey, the, the owner of the team, and then Rothstein, the kind of the big the big uh, fixer, I guess, if you will, the guy who who provides the money for the fix. Uh, to, these are the these are the bad guys, the ones who are very clearly kind of twitching their or fiddling with their mustaches, basically, and scheming, and are very transparent in what they're doing and why, and don't have a lot of um, there. There's no real redemption for them, um, and. I suppose the film tries to have a gray area or a middle ground or a audience surrogate to kind of get us invested in both the team and the story and allow us to feel what's emotionally at stake with the character of Eddie, who is played by David Strathairn, who is the, you know, the older pitcher who has been struggling with injury. And this is kind of, you get the sense, his last hurrah. Um, was cheated out of a bonus because he was supposed to win 30 games, but then was benched by the the team owner and only won 29. So he was cheated out of a $10,000 bonus, which I think in nowadays might be close to like $130,000 or something like that. And he wants to, you know, he's got these two young daughters and he wants to put them through college. So it's this idea of we understand that he has uh, kind of a personal vendetta against the owner and also has uh, an, a, a need for the money that he was robbed from. Um, and it, it is kind of a little funny watching this movie in 2020 that was made in 1988, talking about 1919 and thinking like, well, he was a professional athlete. He's got to be swimming in, in, in boatloads of money because that's kind of how it is these days. But was not the case from what I understand back in, in, in 1919 or 1918 when this film was supposed to take place. Um, Comiskey, who is the, the owner of the White Sox and, um, miserly and, um, uh, not willing to part with any dollar, even for the best team in the league, uh, that was not anomalous. Um, it, it, from what I understand, most baseball owners were like that back then. You could argue and say that a lot of sports teams owners are like that now, uh, but it just so happens that there is a whole lot more money to go around now. Thank you, uh, sponsorship and capitalism. But, um, but there, there. But even with Eddie, we once again we have the basic knowledge. We know that he's older. We know that he, you know, wants this money to make sure his kids have a good future, and we know that he's angry about uh, or angry with Comiskey because of being robbed out of the bonus that he was um, cheated out of, he feels. But it sets that up, but then it doesn't really explore it in much detail. And, and I think it's because this film does, I don't even want to say does so much, but it's a large ensemble piece in which we have to know about these eight men who history ultimately deemed, or I should say baseball ultimately deemed guilty. Um, but we have to know all of them. We have to know why all of them are invested in. We have to know why all of them are doing it. We have to know the conflict between all of them. We have to know the conflict between not just them, but then with them and the rest of the team. And then we have to know about the public perception. This film tries to do a lot and in not a whole lot of time, uh, which I realize is a bit weird saying because this movie is almost two hours long and yet feels like it could have been, maybe should have been a little bit longer, or maybe would have been better served with the, I know Ken Burns ultimately made a documentary series um, about this 
same scandal and some of the actors in this film actually ended up um, lending their voices to the same characters in the documentary uh, kind of re-dramatization. So I, I, I wonder if this film was just trying to do uh, too much and wasn't able to do it effectively. Um, I want to read just two uh, two little snippets from Roger Ebert's review of Eight Men Out, which kind of hit at the problems that I had with this film and, and kind of uh, where the problems lie. Um, in the introductory paragraph, he says, Eight Men Out is an oddly unfocused movie made of earth tones, sidelong glances, and elliptic conversations. It tells the story of how the stars of the 1919 Chicago White Sox team took payoffs from gamblers to throw the World Series, but if you're not already familiar with that story, you're unlikely to understand it after seeing this film. And then just jumping down two paragraphs uh, a little bit here, he says, Watching the movie, I gained a new appreciation for the old-fashioned Hollywood style of telling a story in which, right near the beginning, we'd get a big close-up of each of the key characters and someone would call them by their name or describe them. You know, something like, See that fellow over there? That's shoeless Joe Jackson. He's one of the greatest fielders who ever lived, but they say he doesn't even know how to write his own name. And those two things hint at my two biggest problems, or I guess just the one biggest problem in the sense of, um, we're told, we're shown instead of told, basically, you know, one of the, the, the cardinal rules of storytelling is show, don't tell, don't just say, here's this person and here's why you should be paying attention to them. Make us pay attention to them, make us care about them. Um, you know, and, and there is a, in that opening scene, we have Christopher Lloyd's uh, character who plays, I believe, um, what is his name? Um, Sleepy Bill Burns, who is one of the guys who's one of the gamblers who's kind of trying to set up the scheme. And um, he's talking with his uh, partner, played by Richard Edson, and they're basically kind of scouting the team and sort of saying like, oh, you know, here's Chick, you know, he might be a good candidate. And, and it, I appreciated that because it does introduce us to who the characters are and sort of um, introduces us to the conflict within the bullpen as well. Uh, everybody doesn't really get along with each other. Um, the only thing that really seems to unite them is how much they hate Comiskey, this guy who um, uh, who, who provides a, a bonus to his team for winning the pennant in the form of um, flat champagne, basically. He's a real tightwad. He's a real asshole. And we are introduced to that early, and we are introduced to the hero, not just the players, but also who is most likely to be willing to throw the game. And we have that through the character of Sleepy Bill Burns, who is introducing us to this, who is who is doing what Ebert says in the sense of, hey, here's this guy. Here's what we know about him. Almost as though it's almost as though it's it's like a, a cinematic form of a baseball card, which here's the here's the 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 player on the team. Let's flip over to the back and see the stats of that person. And I appreciated that that it set that up, but then the film doesn't do a very good job of engaging us in their story because there are so many characters and because we are supposed to care so much about them, but we're not given enough information about their their internal lives, um, who they are off the baseball uh, pitch, baseball pitch, that's not a thing, off the, uh, off the baseball diamond, but then also um, enough of an exploration of their characters. The film sets up Shoeless Joe Jackson as this guy who is... Um, unfairly scapegoated um you know in the sense of like here is this great american baseball player who is also kind of maybe a bit dumb and coerced into confessing something that he didn't actually do and yet we spend so little time with him that i don't know anything about really this guy other than he 
can't spell his own name, maybe? And I, 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 there's not enough time spent as to set up that conflict as to here is a great talent who was really tainted by this unfortunate thing. The very last scene in this film is Bucky, you know, uh, you know watching a, 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 a semi-pro game in Hoboken with a crowd and kind of talking about, yeah, that's Shoeless Joe Jackson, or, or no, deflecting it, not admitting that that guy in the outfield is Shoeless Joe Jackson, but, you know, kind of using um, the awe of, the, of these two bystanders to kind of talk about how great of a player Shoeless Joe Jackson was and how unfortunate it was that this thing happened to him. But I don't feel that through the film. There, there's not enough done to make me appreciate who Shoeless Joe Jackson was, to make me understand why he was a victim, and to make me believe that he was a fantastic player. Um, from what I understand, the guilt of Shoeless Joe Jackson is one of the most controversial elements of this giant controversy in his betting scandal in the sense of there is some heated debate as to whether he was involved or whether he was thrown under the bus. Um, but that doesn't play out in great detail here because we instead are, we instead are spending so much time um, with Bucky. Maybe instead, the, I think maybe the story should have been told from the POV of Shoeless Joe Jackson. That would have been a little bit better. Um, and, and, and we're not spending enough time with Eddie, who is, I guess, supposed to be our emotional core, our entryway into this story. And we have a few scenes with him, but it's not, I don't know anything about his, his daughters. I don't know anything about his family life. I don't know anything outside of the fact that, um, and I don't even get a good sense of the moral conflict within him in the sense of he's on board with it to be, to, to, to begin with, but then is maybe struggling with it as the series goes along. There's just not enough done with his character um, because there are so many characters involved with this. And I, I think, unfortunately, Sales doesn't do a great job of making us care about um, these characters. Like I said, it you know the beginning of of this film, and and as as Ebert said in the, in his um, review, it helps establish the who, but it's harder to nail down why basically. Um, and, and I read that this film, that Sales was contractually obligated to keep this movie under two hours. And um, and, and you, you get that because there's a real quickness to the dialogue in the sense of the exposition and just kind of how snappy it was. Um, and I know Sales had had the entire uh, cast kind of watch the film City of, uh, City of Conquest from 1940 to inspire the cast to, to talk really fast. Um, and once again, it's that idea of like, to talk really fast, we need to get information out. We need to convey information. Where It basically kind of feels like we have to get through a checklist of everything that happened instead of necessarily making it feel important. Um, adaptation is a very difficult job because you're basically taking one medium and adapting it to a different one. The rules of a good book do not stand up to or, or, or do not translate to a good film and vice versa. So adaptation, I, I, I admit, is, must be a very intimidating job, but I, I just wonder if there could have been stuff left out of this. Um, composite characters, maybe. I don't know. Like, a, like even, um, even the, the lefty, I think his name was, or maybe it was Eddie Collins. Um, Anyway, um, but the, the, the one pitcher who was also in on it once he found out that Eddie was in on it um, and then eventually kind of decides, like, no, I just want to play a good series. And then someone um, basically threatens to kill his wife and that gets him back into cheating, basically, or, you know, a, a bookmaker or a better is basically kind of like, you know, threatens to kill his wife. And then uh, unless he throws the game, basically, um, 
that's a that's an invention that didn't actually happen in real life. So that is an invention of the book that Sales did adapt or, or take into the film at least. Um, I don't know. I guess I maybe I would wanted to see a bit more creative liberties taken, even though I don't know the story in great detail, even though I didn't read the book. It just seems like this film is so concerned with conveying information to you instead of conveying why we should care about it necessarily. And the snappiness of the dialogue, the quickness of everything, I actually couldn't decide while I was watching the film, it, 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 do I appreciate this because it's sort of a homage or an appreci appreciation for old-time Hollywood films, for that kind of stuff that Ebert is talking about, kind of an, an old-school, um, uh, you know, snappy, as I said, earnest kind of filmmaking? Or is it just a guy who's not not doing a great job when it comes to um, uh, cutting things down or making a, a making it a more efficient story um we get a lot of regurgitation of facts but not enough time with some scenes or characters to let the emotion sink in because the film seems like it's trying to check boxes um i i, I talked about this idea of, of telling instead of showing um once this film becomes kind of a courtroom drama uh it becomes you know kind of a, a stereotypical courtroom drama in which you have um, you know, Bucky making his grand statement, his 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 scream in court, like protesting his innocence and like demanding that he get his his own trial. Um, we get Shoeless Joe Jackson as the great victim, but we don't know. I didn't feel like he was a great victim, but I I'm continuously being told by Bucky that he is a great victim. Um, and also, uh, one thing, and once again, as Eber mentioned, this idea of if you're not familiar with this story, you're not going to have a great understanding with it in the end of this um as we know as history has laid out all of the uh baseball players were found not guilty when it came to a legal proceeding so none of them were were held accountable legally for what they did and yet they were all banned from um baseball for for life for from professional baseball from the major league baseball uh league um major league baseball league department of redundancy department anyway um but I don't. But why? I mean, as as a as a person who is interested in history but doesn't know a whole lot about baseball, why were they found not guilty? There was no insight into the jury deliberation. There was no real discussion outside of the courtroom as to what might be playing factors in that. Um, the 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 verdict is handed down because it's handed down as it was in the past in history, but without really any meditation or exploration of why that was the case. Within the courtroom scene, we certainly do have the elements of John Sales as a filmmaker and what he's interested uh, come into play. Um, in the sense of we have Bill Burns, who is a guy who is um, one of the, or should be on the surface, one of the most guilty um, players in this entire scheme, you know, as someone who was setting up the bets, who was connecting with the players and, and, and kind of being the middleman between the, the bookkeepers, the, the money men and the, the baseball players. I must admit, I don't understand a great deal about, um, uh, sports betting or, or, or bookmaking or any of that kind of stuff. Um, on the surface, he's one of the most guilty people, and yet the film kind of makes him a symbol of, I'm cooperating with the prosecution, so I'm going to get off scot-free. And you have these baseball players who are guilty um, of a crime, of 
uh, some immoral behavior that are being thrown under the bus. Um, and there is a little bit of an exploration of that idea of why are these the only ones who are being persecuted? Why are they the only victims when, yes, they did something wrong, but they were not the only guilty parties involved when they could have given names and those people could have given names and this ran higher up the chain and yet the only people that are really suffering are the ones who are or were kind of suffering in their own way. Once again, a miserly wealthy owner who is mistreating his players um, is what kicks off all this ire and what starts them down this path of um, wanting to seek their own retribution. And their own retribution or their own revenge is throwing the game so that they can personally benefit when they have not been personally benefiting. Now, that's an interesting angle because historically that's up for debate as well. Was that really the case or did some people on the baseball team just really want to make more money, which is far less, I don't want to say noble, but far less complicated or, or, or morally gray, if you will. But that's a, a, an angle the film takes and I can appreciate that. But I also don't understand, once again, why the verdict was handed down, what factored into that, because even though they're set up to be victims. Also, when they came onto into the courtroom, they're still very much treated as celebrities. So it also didn't feel like there was a whole lot at stake for them. Um, once again, maybe something that's supposed to be morally at stake for a character like Bucky and for Eddie because they are ultimately banned from baseball for life. But if they were found to be not guilty, then what is... Well, you know, they they're found to be not guilty. They also didn't win the World Series, but it's it's basically that question of so what what did they what did they lose? I know from history what they lost was the ability to play pro baseball, but the weight of that loss is not felt for me. Maybe a little bit through Bucky, but only because he's constantly telling us, "Man, I just love the game. Man, I just love the game," and he's telling us that oftentimes through these small children, basically. Um, but we don't really get a sense of what Eddie lost. I, I mean, I guess his kids aren't going to go to college. Now, I, I don't know. And that's the thing is make Eddie our entryway into the emotional core or make Bucky our entryway into it because it kind of tries to, to play it both ways and doesn't satisfactorily do it, actually. Um, so it's like they're, they, okay, they're not able to play baseball again, but I don't feel the, the emotional weight of that, especially because the last scene in the film with all of them together are them all celebrating together basically we have a, an interesting opening scene in which we clearly see that the the players don't get along with each other don't necessarily really like each other and then we have this harmony at the end of them all coming together because this was a situation that brought them all together and they're celebrating that they are not guilty but that also feels weird should they all be celebrating together should Bucky be celebrating with Chick and Sweet and these people that basically um fucked him over it Emotionally, it feels kind of dissonant, and I don't really understand it. Um, but buried with all, buried within that is this idea of class oppression that Sales introduced in this month in the Brother from Another Planet, and this idea of wealthy people taking advantage of people who are below them on the social ladder. It's just the um, this the 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 emotional story is muddled and lost, basically. Um, and and I also kind of get this got the the impression maybe this is one of those situations where another director should have 
directed his script. You know, we, we talk, we, we talk, a lot, we don't talk a lot about this, but just that idea of, uh, I know this, this, uh, I hear a lot of people saying this after, um, you know, after M. Night Shyamalan continued to kind of bungle his own shit, where it's like, maybe just have him write a script and have someone else direct it. Maybe he's too close to the material. And when you do have a script which is so concerned with checking off boxes, maybe you need a director who would be, who would do a better job at making that emotional core come through, who would um, work with the characters better. I don't really know. It's just, it's because it's interesting to me in that it, it, it tells us all we need to know, but doesn't really help us to feel what we need to feel. Um, one of the few things that I really appreciate about the creativity or the construction of the film is Robert Richardson as the DP. Um, as we all know, these days, you know, multi-Oscar winner has worked a lot with Martin Scorsese and a lot with Quentin Tarantino. And even, you know, back in 1988, he wasn't a nobody. He had already had one Oscar nomination under his belt for um, shooting Platoon with Oliver Stone, a very clearly talented, skilled director of photography. And how that comes through, I can kind of see it in this film in the sense of um, Ebert mentioned in, in his uh, review, The Earth Tones. I actually kind of enjoyed sort of a slightly opaque kind of desaturated look to it almost as though this was you know kind of looking back on these old time halcyon kind of hazy days um there's a wonderful shot of uh, of all of the players after they win that first game and they they've won the pennant and they're coming down into the bullpen to ultimately celebrate with their what is flat champagne um there's a haziness to the light which is shining down the, the staircase um with like kind of dust floating in the air and does have that that uh old dusty kind of feel to it which I really appreciate and I also noticed um in sharp contrast to the brother from another planet a use of a lot of long lenses in this there's a lot of close-ups specifically a lot of close-ups with a very shallow depth of field and um it's not anything which is particularly flashy but something that I really appreciated because it seems to for me at least emphasize sort of a separation between the players because a lot of times, a lot of those shots do have maybe Eddie in the foreground and Swede in the background out of focus or something. And just subtly re-emphasizing through visual depth a separation, an emotional separation, or maybe even a moral separation between the players. Which is a really interesting technique that I, that I um, really thought added a little bit of subtlety to um, the direction. But other than that, I mean, there's... Yeah, I, I really wonder if this film would have been better served with a different director kind of bringing the script to life who could have worked with the emotional core a bit better. Um, yeah, so, I mean, not a bad movie, but not a great movie. One that just kind of felt long um, and that I, I didn't particularly really... Um, uh, engage with that much, but um, if you want to watch or rewatch Eight Men Out, it's one of the most widely available films that I think I've ever covered on this podcast. It is um, free to watch with ads through the Roku channel, through Vudu, through Tubi, or or through Pluto TV. Also, um, if you uh, you can watch it for free on Amazon through the IMDb TV app, which I watched as well. Um, you have to put up with a few ads that cutting in at seemingly random places here and there, but um, other than that, it, it, it's pretty good. Um, but you can also rent it or purchase it through the usual channels, YouTube, Google Play, 
Redbox, Amazon, Vudu, Microsoft, iTunes, and AMC On Demand. Um, I am, of course, always curious to hear what you um, have to say, whether you agree or disagree with me. You can feel free to shoot me an email at um, you do or yes, you do movies badly at gmail.com. Uh, tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth or um, catch up on back episodes or in the comment fields on battleshipretention.com uh, or on I do movies badly.podbean.com as well. But that does it for Eight Men Out. Be sure to um, tune in next week. We'll be wrapping up May and wrapping up John Sales with uh, his Oscar nominated 1993 film Lone Star where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 